Some days I wish I had a normal job. It's usually when I'm uh, up early in the morning and uh, I'm sitting next to someone on an airplane and then they ask me the question, what do you do for a living? Okay? Now for me, there's no short answer to that question. Um, some people have jobs that are self-explanatory. You know, everyone knows what a police officer is. Um, we all know what a plumber is. We even know what a pastor is. Um, but most people have no clue about what an apologist is. Okay? In fact, that includes many people in the church. And so just so we're clear, and I probably made this joke before, apologetics is not going around saying, I'm so sorry, I'm a Christian, please forgive me. No, we make other people sorry we're Christians, right? <laughs> now, we don't, we don't do that either, okay? Just so, just so we're clear, that's a joke. Uh, simply put, an apologist is someone who gives a reason or a defense for what they believe and why they believe it. I want you to imagine, when you hear the word apologist, imagine a lawyer standing in front of a jury and a judge and they're going to make their case. They give arguments, and they give counter-arguments. They're trying to be persuasive. That's what an apologist does, okay? And so they're trying to make a case for their position. Now, the Bible commands us all to be apologists. Probably the most often cited verse in Scripture for this comes from the Apostle Peter. Peter writes to Christians in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, and they are facing intense persecution. And in that letter, he encourages those Christians to be ready to engage, or engage the culture um, uh, when they oppose the gospel. And it says this, 1 Peter 3, 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. And that word defense is this word apologia, which is where we get the strange word apologetics or apologist. Defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. Now that word apologia, it's used eight times in your New Testament. And every time, it means a formal defense. So think of that lawyer, okay, arguing for their position. Now Paul also tells the church at Philippi that we are all partakers with him of the gospel, both in his imprisonment, and, he says this, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. There's that same word again. There's that same word. So the Bible tells us to be apologists. But here's my question. Does the Bible actually show us how to be apologists? And I think the answer is yes, okay? And you don't have to look very far. We just have to go to the apostle Paul. In fact, if you want to be an effective apologist... You need to imitate Paul. We should be apologists like Paul. We should be apologists. You see what I did there? Apologists. Yeah, that was really bad. But it's, it's, I think it's clever. So let's, let's study Acts 17 together and see if we can pick out some key attributes for what an apologist looks like. We're going to start Acts 17 you got your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We're going to go to verse 16 as we start. And here is lesson number one from Paul. 
if you want to be an apologist, listen apologetically. Listen apologetically. It says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them, we'll find out who that was in a minute, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul's on his second missionary journey here. And Acts 17 begins with Paul and Silas. They arrive at Thessalonica, and they start preaching the gospel. And wouldn't you know it, people are getting saved. Now, the Jews didn't like that, okay? The Jewish leaders, they weren't happy. And so they opposed what Paul was doing. They actually caused an uproar against him. And as a result, it wasn't safe anymore. And so they shipped Paul out to Berea. So he starts in Thessalonica, then he goes to Berea. And as soon as they get there, they go straight to the synagogue. Again, they start preaching the gospel. And wouldn't you know it, people start getting saved. Now, those same Jewish leaders, they heard what was going on in Thessalonica. And they come to Berea and they do the same thing. They cause an uproar. It's not safe for Paul again. And uh, here's what our text says. Acts 17, 13 to 15. So this is right before we did uh, verse 16. It says this. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God, it's interesting, it's called the word of God that was being proclaimed, by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way by this, or to the sea, but Silas and Timothy, they remained there. They're going to stay in Berea. Those who conducted or escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. So they're dropping Paul off at Athens. Okay. So Paul, he's in Thessalonica. They chase him out of there. Then he goes to Berea. They chase him out of there too. And now he's on his way to Corinth. That's going to be chapter 18 of Acts. He's on his way to Corinth, but he finds himself in Athens. Now what is he doing in Athens? Well, our text said... He's waiting. Well, who's he waiting for? He's waiting for Timothy and Silas. Now, I want to just pause here because there's something really interesting. I don't want you to miss how big this is because everything that we're going to read that follows from this all began because Paul was waiting. Okay? Now, where do you wait? Do you wait at the doctor's office? Do you wait at the grocery store? Or maybe when you're, you're waiting for your kids after school, you're going to pick them up. Or, or maybe you're waiting uh, between classes. Or maybe you wait on your lunch break. We all wait all the time. But Paul isn't merely waiting. At least not the way we typically wait. You know, like when we're waiting, we do one of these, right? We're just like, no, he's not, he's not doing that. When Paul's waiting, he's on the lookout He's listening, he's watching, he's observing for opportunities. No, Paul doesn't wait like that, not like we wait. I remember teaching at King City Secondary School. This was a few years ago. I was on staff there, and, uh, and I was covering an on-call period. Do you guys know what an on-call period is? So it's like a substitute, but it's like in-house, okay? So I'm in a classroom that I don't normally teach. And I actually got to the classroom early so that I could write the agenda on the board, okay? Now, the teacher I was covering for, they were, 
they were pretty proactive. They actually had everything ready to go. Everything's on the board. So I got there, and I, I got nothing to do, okay? And so I sat behind the teacher's desk, and I was waiting. And then the, the bell went. The, the, the students start flooding in, okay? They're funneling in. And I overhear a student with his friends. He's walking in. As he's walking in the door, he says, there's no good arguments for God's existence. That's what he says. You better believe, like Paul, my spirit was provoked within me. Okay? And what followed was a period-long, fruitful discussion where we looked at the evidence for God. And this all happened in a public school classroom. Sometimes I wonder how many opportunities we miss because we're too busy or we're too self-involved or we're too distracted. You know, we're not listening. Let's be clear. I'm not talking about merely hearing, okay? I'm talking about listening with a, an apologetic purpose, okay? Uh, listening for opportunities that can lead to fruitful spiritual conversation. Sometimes I'm in my office and I'm in the zone, okay? And I'm just typing away and my kids will come up to me and they'll ask me a question. And I don't even turn my face away. I just say, yeah, yeah, I'm listening. You know what my kids do? My three-year-old, Allison, will come up to me, take her hands like this and grab my face. I shouldn't have done that. Grab my face and turn it to her eyes. And she says, look in my eyes. That's what she says. Look in my eyes. Because she knows I'm not really listening. I might even hear some words, but I'm not really listening. That's the kind of listening I'm talking about. I'm talking about listening, not just with these things, okay? I'm talking about listening, watching, observing for opportunities. So we've only, we've only covered one verse, and we've got a few more verses to cover, okay? But we've already learned a valuable lesson from Paul. If you want to be a good apologist, Listen apologetically. Lesson number two. If you want to be an apologist, think contextually. Think contextually. Acts 17, 17 to 21 says this. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. We have to go to the next slide on this. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time doing nothing except telling and hearing something new. So our text, in our text, we see that Paul is engaging two different groups of people. In fact, it's two different religious contexts, okay? We, we see him reasoning with uh, the people in the synagogue, and we see him reasoning with the people uh, in the marketplace, Furthermore, Paul tailors his approach to his context. That is, he approaches the people in the synagogue 
differently than he approaches the people at the marketplace. And so let's take a closer look at how he reasoned with the people in the synagogue. Well, um, when Paul reasons with the Jews in the synagogue, he actually goes straight to their scriptures, okay? What we would call the Old Testament to connect the dots between the prophesied Messiah and Jesus Christ, okay? So that's how, that's his approach. In fact, we can read about this in Acts 17, verses 1 to 4. Here's what verses 1 to 4 say. Now, when they passed along through, or they passed through Amphiopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue to the Jews. Now, listen. And Paul went in, as was his custom. This was his routine. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from where? The scriptures. Explaining and proving. Notice those verbs. That it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to die, rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Christ means Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So the synagogue is where the Jews and some Gentile converts to Judaism would go to worship. In this context, Paul has a lot of common ground, okay? Uh, with these people, they believed in a personal God who created the world and interacts with the world. They believe in the same scriptures, right? They believe the Bible is authoritative. These same people um, would agree that there's a Messiah, a prophesied Messiah, God's anointed one. And as a result, Paul uses this context as his starting point. All right? So he reasoned with these people from the scriptures. A hundred years ago, this kind of approach might have worked in our culture, okay? Um, many people at that time, they would have shared biblical beliefs. Biblical beliefs about God, biblical beliefs about the Bible, uh, a shared morality. But that is not the case today. We live in a different cultural context. Our cultural context looks more like the marketplace than the synagogue. It looks more like Athens and the Areopagus than Jerusalem. When Paul reasons in the marketplace, as we'll see, he takes a different approach. You see, some of the Athenians, um, they didn't, they didn't uh, understand the Christian God. This was, and this is the word they use, a foreign concept. They don't understand what Paul's talking about. They call it a new teaching. They call it a strange thing. Now, Athens was a very religiously diverse place. Okay, the Jews, they worshipped a single god. That's called monotheism. There were others there that worshipped many gods, and that's called polytheism. And there, there were those there who didn't worship any gods, and they were atheists. From verse 16... We already know that Athens was a place that was full of idols. How many idols? Well, some say that there were as many as 30,000 idols in Athens, okay? Streets and buildings were filled with these statues, 
to Neptune and Pluto and Apollo and Athena, and the list goes on and on. But Athens was also a hot spot, not just for religious diversity, but also philosophical views. Paul specifically mentions two kinds of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans, uh, they believed that all of reality was only material, was matter. We call this materialism. And so they didn't believe in God. On their view, there's no gods, and there's no life after death. So you could see how a resurrection is not going to fly with them. In fact, Epicurus, the, its founder, he believed in a form of hedonism where pleasure is the greatest good. Does that philosophy sound familiar? The Stoics taught that all reality is part of God. Um, God is not a personal being. He's an impersonal being, okay? God is more like a rational principle that kind of suffuses the universe. And so the Epicureans, they're atheistic. The Stoics, they're pantheistic. Needless to say, these people that Paul's talking about, they have a different starting point than the Jews, right? I mean, you, Paul can't just get up there and say, well, thus saith the Lord, right? Well, why can't he do that? Because this isn't authoritative to them. And so they have a different starting point. They have a different context. Some people today are trying to talk to marketplace Athenians as if they're synagogue Jews. And we wonder why we feel like we're just talking past each other, right? Like we're not gaining any ground or traction. If you want to engage the culture in conversations, you need to find out where they're at. You need to ask them things like, well, where are you coming from? What do you believe and why do you believe it? What's your worldview? And ask yourself, where might I find common ground to start from? I think that's what Paul did. So not only was he listening apologetically, but he was thinking contextually. Lesson number three. If you want to be an apologist, remember this. If you don't remember anything else, respond graciously. Respond graciously. Paul is dragged, okay? I don't, it doesn't say if he went against his will, but that's the word, right? He's dragged to the Areopagus by these people. This is sometimes called Mars Hill. That was the god, Mars. And so he's going to address these thinkers and these philosophers. And here's what Acts 17, 22 to 23 says. So Paul, standing in the uh, midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Notice Paul doesn't, how he doesn't begin. He doesn't start by saying, I perceive that you're all a bunch of polytheistic pagans, a bunch of atheistic sinners. What is your problem? Why are you worshiping all these idols? Don't you know how ridiculous that is? Repent or burn in hell. 
That's not how he starts, right? He, he doesn't start, this is interesting, he doesn't start with condemnation. He actually starts with admiration. Paul graciously begins with common grounds. It's as if he says, you know what I really like about you guys? You're religious. You're very religious. Hey, me too. It's almost like he's trying to be gracious. He's trying to bring them in with his uh, character. Now, Paul doesn't just talk the talk. He walks the walk, okay? He practices what he preaches. You see, when Paul writes a letter to Colossae, the church in, uh, in Colossae, Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Listen, let your speech always, everyone say always, always be gracious seasoned with salt we all know salt makes everything taste so much better right that's what your that's what your word should be like so that you may know how you ought to answer each person this same gracious attitude is echoed in first peter three fifteen. we are we already looked at it actually he says to give a defense a reason and it's almost like he he's anticipating when you do that you might be a jerk about it you might have a bad attitude and he said, so he adds, yet do this with gentleness and respect. Oftentimes, when we get into these heated discussions with people who don't share our beliefs, listen, our character is the first thing to go. But you need to know that your manner is as important as your message. I like how Pastor Joe Thorne puts it. He says this. He tweeted this. The fool says in his heart, the rightness of my theology makes up for the wrongness of my attitude. That's what the fool says. That's not scripture, by the way. Um, so if people reject what we say because of the offensiveness of the message, well, that's on them. But if they reject what we have to say because of the offensiveness of the messenger, that's on us. Paul begins with a compliment, but he doesn't stop there. He's going to offer a correction. The Athenians have objects of worship to every god under the sun and including the sun. And just in case they missed a god, they had an altar set up to the unknown god. So Paul is going to tell them who this god is. So first we listen apologetically and then we think contextually and when we respond we do it graciously lesson number four if you want to be an apologist know deeply know deeply paul continues Acts 17 24 to 27 the god who made the world and everything in it being lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Notice their religiosity their sincerity was not enough. In other words, they were sincere 
but they were sincerely mistaken. Paul, speaking to the church in Rome, says something very similar to what we just read. He says, uh, he says, brothers, this is Romans 10, 1 and 2, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them, the Jews, is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a, leal, a, a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Does that sound familiar? These Athenians also have a zeal or uh, religiosity for God, but it's not according to knowledge. They're missing something. They need to know something about the one true God. As in Paul's day, there are many today who are confused about who God is. He's a foreign God to them. They need someone to tell them about God. Here's the problem. If we're going to talk about the true God, we need to know about the true God. Paul's engagement with the Athenians doesn't even get off the ground without a deep understanding of what God is like. And that knowledge doesn't come through osmosis. I didn't lay my head down last night and just wake up with all kinds of new insights about God. It doesn't work like that. It takes work, hard work. It involves hours studying and meditating on God's Word. It takes time thinking deeply about the nature and concept of God. It takes time reflecting on the Christian worldview. And by the way, that is what we call loving God with all of our minds. Here's the bottom line. You will never be able to boldly speak truth if you don't deeply know truth. Okay? You'll never be able to speak the truth if you don't first know the truth. And so we listen apologetically. We think contextually. We respond graciously. We know deeply. Lesson number five. If you want to be an apologist, read widely. Now, you, you might miss this, okay, um, if you're just reading through this text. But Acts 17, 27b, we're going to kind of pick up in 27 and 28. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, listen, here's two quotes. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, he, Paul does something really remarkable here, and I don't want you to miss it. He doesn't quote scripture. He, he's not quoting the Old Testament here. Remember, his audience does not think scripture is actually authoritative. And so he's thinking contextually, and so what does he do? He quotes their authority, their poets, and their prophets to make his point. In him we live and move and have our being. That's a quote from the poet Epimenides. For we are indeed his offspring. That's a quote from the Stoic philosopher Aratus. Now don't miss the significance of this. Paul didn't just understand his own worldview... He actually understood the worldview of the people that he was talking to. Not only did he know their worldview, he knew their teachers. He knew their authorities, and he was able to use that to make his case. So here's my question. How well do you know what the culture believes? 
Is that convicting? Can you quote their authorities? Because I'll tell you what, Paul could. Paul could do it. We need to challenge ourselves to read and to watch and to listen to things that we just don't agree with. Why? So that you can understand and respond to the culture like Paul did. So we said we listen, con- we listen apologetically and we think contextually and we respond graciously and we know deeply and re- we read widely. And some of you are wondering, how many lessons are in this text? Lesson number six. If you want to be an apologist, reason wisely. Reason wisely. Acts 17, 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think... That the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We ought not think that way. At this point, we've been learning a lot from just Paul's approach, just kind of standing there, kind of watching him as he does what he does. But let's not lose sight of his argument. Paul is showing his audience that idolatry is wrong, not by preaching at them directly, but by reasoning about the nature of God and then looking at those implications. Here's his argument in a nutshell. If there is a creator God who made everything, including human beings, and if we are his offspring, we are God's offspring, then God cannot be made of stone or silver or gold. Why not? It makes no sense for the God who created everything including living human beings, to be like a carved thing that is made by a human being. That doesn't make any sense, is what he's saying. Or put it this way. An idol made by man can never be the God who made man. An idol that is made by you and I can't be God who made everything, including me, right? That's illogical. So Paul reasons with these people who are supposed to be reasonable. Lesson number seven. If you want to be an apologist, speak boldly. Speak boldly. Acts 17, 30, 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Everything Paul has said so far is actually leading up to this point. Everything. After showing that idol worship is not true God worship, since the true God can't be an idol, Paul talks about God's judgment. He's not just the creator of the universe. He's also the judge of the universe. And that should cause us to repent. One of the things I love about Paul is that he never backs down from telling the truth, even when the truth is really hard. He speaks truth with conviction and confidence, and we need more of that kind of courage today. But where does, God, where does this confidence, this courage, come from? Well, certainly it comes from the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt about that. But I think this, t- this text actually tells us about where this confidence comes from. 
It comes from the strength of the evidence. It comes from knowing that what you're saying is actually true. That's where it comes from. How does Paul know what he's saying is true? He tells us. Because the same Jesus who, who said that he would rise from the dead and then did rise from the dead, that same Jesus said that he would come and judge the world in righteousness. And if he did the former, you better believe he's going to do the latter. And so we speak boldly, knowing truth is on our side. Okay, lesson number eight. This is it, okay? This is the last lesson. So, uh, lesson number eight. If you want to be an apologist, trust faithfully. Acts 17, 32 to 34. I love these words. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Okay, that's one response. But others said, we will hear you again about this. That's another response. Paul went out from their midst, but some, joined, some men joined him and believed. That's a third response. Among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's be honest. Evangelism can be pretty discouraging, okay? If you've done some evangelism, you know that's true. We usually don't get the results that we want, that's why I'm so glad that Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, why I'm so glad Luke records the results of Paul's engagement on Mars Hill. Luke could have simply wrote, and some believed. Paul preaches, and some believed. In fact, that's what he did in Acts 17, verse 4, when he's in the Jewish synagogue. Some are persuaded. That's all he says. He actually says more here. He gives us greater detail. He doesn't just give us the positive response. Could have. But he also gives us the negative response, the negative reaction. And I, for one, am grateful for that. You see, some mocked. Some mocked. There are going to be times when you're in spiritual conversations, you're being an apologist, and people are going to mock you and what you believe. Here's a reality check. Don't be surprised if you don't get better results than the Apostle Paul. Right? You think, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to do this better than Paul. It ain't, ain't going to work. All right? Um, when he engaged the culture, he was ridiculed, and they ridiculed his message. It can happen to him. It happened to him, and it's going to happen to you. But don't be discouraged. Your job is to be persuasive. It's not your job to ultimately persuade. There was another response. Some wanted to hear more. There are going to be times when you engage people as the apologist and people will want to hear more. In these interactions, you've got to be patient. Give people time and space to process what you're saying. For some people, coming to Christ is a long journey. And so be prepared to walk that with them. And finally, some believed. There are going to be times when you will engage the culture and people are going to believe. It happened in Paul's day and it happens today. 
Whatever the response, please don't measure the success of your apologetic in terms of the results, okay? Don't measure your success that way. Rather, do your best and then trust God to use your efforts to glorify God. We're responsible for our end of evangelism. It's not your job to save people. It's your job to introduce them to the one who does, okay? That's your job. Well, if you want to be an effective apologist, listen, uh, learn from Paul. Imitate Paul. That's what he asked us to do. How are you going to do that? First, you're going to listen apologetically. Listen for opportunities to engage people around you. But don't just listen. You've got to start thinking. Think contextually. Know your audience. You can't use the same approach with every single person. There's no cookie-cutter approach here. Paul became all things to all men in order to win some. Respond graciously. Your attitude is just as important as your argument. Know deeply. We need to know the truth so that we can speak the truth. Read widely. We also need to know not just what we believe, but we need to know what the culture believes. Reason wisely. We are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Speak boldly. God has given you a message. Don't be afraid to proclaim it. And finally, trust faithfully. Trust God to use and multiply your efforts. And everyone who wants to be an apologist says, Amen. Let's pray.